On The Go podcast is brought to you by The Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.thesanctuarychurch.com. I knew Pastor Dan has a perspective for us on relationships, and so I wanted him to bring that perspective on this Sunday. So please welcome Pastor Dan Broyles. Well, uh, thanks, thanks, Pastor Marty, and uh, just good to be back here. I know I've been here a couple times, and uh, by the way, you have some wonderful staff uh, here. I've got to know Shauna and Vicki and Liz back there. They're just wonderful people here. And uh, just a delight to get to know them the past couple years and just a joy. And I'm just glad the sanctuary is here as part of the community. I'm just thankful for what they do and the, the work they do to serve the community. I'm just really thankful uh, as a partner, partner in Christ. So when, when Pastor Marty said, why don't you talk about relationships? I didn't go Google it, what to talk about. I didn't do that first. I was like, what? That can mean all sorts of things, right? I mean, there's a thousand things you could do when you talk about relationships. And I was like, I wonder what would be good. So then I was thinking, in the New Testament, who does Jesus and who does Paul quote about relationships? Now, they quote the prophets regarding fulfillment and all sorts of stuff, but you know who they quote regarding marriage? Genesis. Early Genesis. Eleven times in the New Testament, Paul or Jesus quotes from the first few book, first few chapters of Genesis to talk about relationships. Notice, Jesus never did the following. Hey, we're going to have a talk on how D- King David was a father. <laughs> he never does a talk about Moses or Abraham and how they were his husbands. But when he talks about like marriage and relationships, both Paul and Jesus go back to the beginning. They go back to the early part of Genesis of God's original design. They go back to what, what was God's original thought about relationships. So for instance, if you have something broken, would you rather um, go to somebody who's watched YouTube about it or go to the person who has a patent on it? The patent, that's obvious. It's really obvious. So what we're going to do today is go back and look at some themes in the early part of Genesis and what was God's design for relationships. What did he mean in the first place? Because we have all sorts of distorted stuff. We're really creative that way. We have a lot of creativity regarding distortion and relationships. It's it's all, all over. But really, if we think of it, God is the inventor of this idea of connection, of bonding, of closeness, of sex, of trust. He's the inventor of all that stuff. He came up with it. He is a lot of those things. So why not look at those things? So we're going to look at five themes, five themes from early Genesis, and what was God's original design. And here's here's what they are. Uh, uh, How did God show love to Adam and Eve? Through It could be some beauty, we'll look at, intrinsic value, difference. Uh, We're actually talking about wives, which is really dangerous for a guy to talk about uh, in a sermon, and then I get to be the guest preacher and run. Um, (laughs) Relief in the relationships and then tools for facing shame. So we're going to look at these five themes in Genesis, early part of Genesis. So imagine this. If I were to go to the, the mall here today and say, what do you think about Christians and the Christian life? 
I'm pretty sure one of the responses I would get from people is they would say, the Christian life is anti-fun. They'd be like, oh, I have to stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this. That's probably what somebody would eventually say. There's a lot of other thoughts people might say. Or anti-pleasure, like, if I want to reduce the fun, I go there. That's what some people think. And I would say that, again, we're going to go back to Genesis. What was God's design? And one of God's design is for us to thoroughly enjoy pleasure. He wants us to really enjoy pleasure. That's part of his design. So let's look at the scriptures here. Genesis 2.9. Genesis 2.9 says this. The Lord God made all kinds of trees that grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Notice right in the middle of this, it says this. That was good, that was pleasing to the eye and good for food. So God designed this garden not just for the practical needs of Adam and Eve. You need some food to sustain yourself. You need some shade. That's it. He actually made it that would be pleasing. He wanted them to have pleasure right there from his creation. He wants that. Now, it's interesting. We don't usually think of, oh, I wonder how I can enjoy more pleasure today as a way of worship. That's not typically where we go. Uh, John, John Piper put it this way. He says, we don't seek pleasure with nearly the resolve and passion that we should, and so we settle for mud pies of appetite instead of infinite delight. We settle for cheap versions. Now, I wonder, you don't have to raise your hands here, if there's anybody out there who has a little bit of a musical artist flair to them and have some gifts there. If you do, I appreciate people like that because that's not me. My wife, Carly, and my boys have never said, hey, you should be an artist. That has never happened. I've been married 26 years. That has never come up, ever. However, those that do, that are, are painters or the composers or whatever it is, they get to remind us of the creativity and beauty of God. Because we're designed to enjoy that stuff. And enjoy, enjoy it for, for, for many reasons. Now, we have to be careful with it. Like any good thing, we can worship the created thing versus the creator of the things. We have to be really careful. We can make something good and make it the best. And so this, I want you to think of a, a, a different way of thinking with this. Is there any coffee people out there? <laughs> coffee fans? Okay, all right. I'm not. I almost got kicked out of my church because of it, because I don't drink coffee. I don't like coffee desserts. I don't like coffee anything. Some people doubt my salvation. But that, that's a different conversation. But... But imagine this. Imagine the following context. If you go to the, the next slide here, it says this. You wake up and you drink the co coffee. God made the taste buds. That's a chance to worship. You come to church, give them a friend a hug, a family member a hug. It's a good thing. It's a chance to worship. You drive somewhere, you see something beautiful, some part of creation, a chance to worship. You listen to some music, it's a chance to worship. Now, when we enjoy these things, how do you think it affects our mood? Absolutely. What do you think it's like to work with, be married to, be really good friends with someone who never enjoys beauty? They're always, always caught up in their stress, caught up in the next problem. What is it like to be around them? We put up with them, we hope. Versus the person's like, wow, this is great. 
They enjoy the beauty that God designed. And then we're more like delightful to be around. So if you're missing out on his beauty, you'll have more stress in your relationships. Because beauty is like a buffer for the stress we face in life. Beauty is a buffer, right? Now, again, not to worship, but to realize the designer of beauty. So even like while we're singing worship songs, that we have to be really careful, I think we have to be really careful that not to worship the experience, but the God of the experience, right? So we have to be really careful there with, with, if anything, on how how we go about this. So that might be really different tomorrow when you wake up and you're just like, I don't want to go to work. I'm tired. To be like, God, thank you for taste buds because this creamer with a little bit of coffee is really good. <laughs> or whatever it is. So Psalms 27.4 just reminds me of beauty is not just something in and of itself. It's something because that's one of the attributes of God. Psalms 27.4 says this, one thing I ask, Lord, this only do I ask, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the what? The beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So when we're missing out on beauty, we're actually not being present with our life. We're not being present. Have you ever uh, like driven with somebody and there's a beautiful sunset and the person next to you is on their phone? And you're like, oh, great. Like, do I say something? Do I not? That's a great sunset or whatever it is. They're missing out. They're not present. So one of the things that beauty does is it helps us be more present with what God's doing. It really does. So that's the first one. The first of the five out of Genesis uh, is this, is enjoying his beauty but with, with healthy boundaries. Number two Number two is this idea that God gives every one of us intrinsic value. You never have to earn it. So imagine this. Imagine you had a bad day yesterday, hypothetically. By the way, any illustration I use is not because it's this person here I know. Okay, let me just, just my disclaimer, the counseling me kind of just has to give that out. Imagine you had a rough day yesterday. You were lazy. You got nothing done. You were kind of easily annoyed at things. And at the end of the day, you put your head on the pillow and you go, thank you, God, that you made me a really valuable person today. By the way, I'm not for laziness or not getting stuff done, but sometimes we associate productivity with value. Or sometimes we associate accomplishments, education, looks, all the stuff, meeting my goals. Now, those are good things to meet goals. It's a good thing to have some accomplishments. That's all good. I'm not anti-goal accomplishment, all that stuff. But that's not what defines my worth and value. If you want to have more emotional distress in your life, get your value from other things besides God. You'll have more emotional chaos every time. You'll actually have a greater chance of codependency too. There's a recipe. If I want more codependency, let other people dictate my mood. Versus... If I go, God, I am so thankful. I'm made in your image. I value outside of what I do, perform, or not do, or what, perform. Oh, I have worth. No matter what. What a, what a gift. If, you, if you're struggling to find something to be thankful for, this is one of them. He gives you worth. That has nothing to do with how you achieve stuff. So just think of this. Imagine if we really embrace this and absorb this concept that I have worth that's a God-given gift. Notice some of the the, the things on the the next slide would say this. 
Others don't need to tell us what we need to hear. Right? Another good attribute would be this. Others have less power over our mood. So if someone goes, I think you're an idiot online. I heard those people say those things online and much worse. And inside you're like, that's too bad. That was a little hurtful. But oh, I have a lot of worth because of what God did in me, designed me. I don't have to make them happy to be okay. Or our valleys of disappointments have more hope. And there's less fear of not meeting someone's expectations. I actually think Jesus was a great disappointer because he so wanted to do the will of his heavenly father, he didn't have to prove his worth to anybody. He never had to prove his worth. And I think what what a great, great example it is for us that we don't have to prove it at all. Okay, I'm going to take a little risk here. I'm the guest guy today, so I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to talk about social justice. And there's a lot of opinions out there on social media. There's a lot of thoughts out there. Um, I'm just going to have a little fun. But I think this relates to this Genesis 1 passage that we're made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, he created us, male, female, he created them. We're made in his image. We have this infinite, infinite worth. So here's what, here's what I'm going to do. When you talk to a non-Christian about this concept of justice, and it's all over the internet, it's everywhere, right? That's not fair, abuse of power, this, 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 and this, and this. One of my favorite questions to ask people is where do you think that intrinsic desire for justice came from? Where do you think it came from? And they're like, I don't know. I just, I, I just want people to be treated fairly. Great. Where do you think that came from? Because this is across races, generations, cultures, that my kids should be treated fairly like other kids. Right? Where does that desire come from? Because in the world sense, just think of these two perspectives. In the world sense of evolutionary design and there's no God, we just come from a bunch of atoms, the strong overtake the what? The weak. That's what's taught. The strong overtake the weak. And if that's the case, why in the world would the strong care about the vulnerable of the weak? It's not congruent. It's not congruent. doesn't make sense. Because you try to defeat them. So even the non-Christians, why would they care about that vulnerable person that's in their community who ha- and their rights when the strong should just defeat the weak? That's the way it is in evolutionary design. Versus what's really congruent is even that non-Christian who doesn't know Jesus goes, I care about that person over there. They shouldn't be treated right that way. That's awful. Why do they have that? Because they know deep down that person has made with worth and they're different than a piece of grass or a plant or a tree. It's congruent. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense that God puts us in this desire that I'm made in this image. I have great worth, and so does the person I just met yesterday. It makes sense. So next time you have that question, you might go, hey, I wonder where it comes from. Because it doesn't make sense with evolutionary design, but it makes a lot of sense from Genesis 1. That we were made male and female. He created us in his image. It's amazing how we all want some fairness for our families, right? And I think it's God built in us. There's a sense of, of worth. But the other thing I want to remind you about this idea of worth is let's say you lose a job tomorrow or one of your family members doesn't want to talk to you or you start, try to start a business, it doesn't work out. You still have infinite worth. Yes. Your worth is still there. Yes. It's God-given. I have people I counsel and they're like, well... I guess I'm not worth it anymore because they rejected me or divorced me or whatever the story is. 
And God sees us really, really different. Really different. All right, so the first one is the sense of beauty. Second one is our value and worth. I put the, the controversial one right in the middle. I'm going to talk, talk about Genesis 2 and um, wives and marriage for a second. And have fun with it, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Genesis 2, verse 20, says this. The man, that's Adam, gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a what? Helper fit for him. It goes on later to say a suitable helper. Now, when I've done classes on marriage and I ask the wives, hey, what do you think about this being described as a helper? I get a lot of interesting responses. I've got anywhere from supportive to slave. I've heard everything in between of like, oh, I'm like the less than kind of thought. So let me help explain what this really means because it has nothing to do with less than at all. If you go up, there's a longer kind of next slide. I know it's a lot here, but I want to start um, reading this a little bit. It says, the Hebrew phrase translated suitable helper includes the two Hebrew words. The first word, helper, implies someone who assists and encourages. Help provides support for what is lacking in the one who needs help. This is more, it feels a little bit disrespectful to the men. Like, you think we need that much help? <laughs> I, I, I don't need that much help. But that's almost what's implied here. But here's, I think, the part. Helper suitable for him means a helper matching his distinctiveness. That's what it really means. It's like a puzzle piece that matches the distinctiveness. This is why sometimes people will read like a marriage book that what worked in one marriage and it won't work in your marriage because it doesn't match the distinctiveness of your marriage. Now there's some general parameters of what a marriage is, but there's some uniqueness. So like with my wife, Carly, she might do something towards me that works that might not work in your marriage because it doesn't match the distinctiveness of that marriage. So that's why sometimes like, well, I'll just give me the three steps. And it might not, and you're like, well, that didn't work. Thanks a lot. Now, this idea of helper, here's, ladies, what I want you to feel encouraged. For any lady out there who's married or wants to be married one day, it actually is a word that's used to describe God himself. The word uh, helper is often used in the Old Testament to refer to God. Twice it's referred to Eve, three times to uh, nations that provide military assistance. If I said, oh, you're going to go provide help to those on the front lines of the military, would you like, oh, that's less than? No, they need help. So the same word is you describe God and those with military assistance. I would not call that less than at all. It's not at all. Uh, all 21 times um, it's used as talking about a vital, vital, powerful, and rescuing kind of help. Again, I'm not sure what it says about men when it says we need rescuing, but that's another whole talk. <laughs> Psalms 10:14. Psalms 10:14. the very second half of this verse, it, this is talking about who God is. This is who God is. It says, to you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the what? The helper of the fatherless. It's the exact same word used in Genesis 2. If I said to you, I think you need to help out that kid in foster care, can you help him or her? You'd be like, oh, that's less than. Don't put me down. No. You say it's a privilege. This person needs help. This kid needs help. 
So it's the same word to match the distinctiveness that, again, it was God's design. Again, we always want to go back to what was God's original design. All right, so what do we have so far? We have beauty. We have intrinsic what? Value. And then this idea, the difference isn't bad, this idea of helper. Or we're going to go to another one, Genesis 2.22. Genesis 2.22. says, then the Lord God... Um, to, women he had taken out of the man, and he said, this is now. I want to focus on that phrase, this is now. It, it, we don't get, it's hard to sometimes go from one language to another, sometimes translation-wise. This phrase, this is now, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, actually those three words, this is now, has this Im- implied thought of relief. So Adam so far was created, Eve has not been created. And he finally gets to not just be with the animals and the trees. And God creates Eve and he goes, finally. There is relief. Even though life is perfect, he has God to himself, there is relief that God created someone to be together. Uh Anybody ever have those, uh, seen those pictures on YouTube where like there's someone from like the military who comes home and they haven't seen their family in a year? And there's relief. That's the intensity of the emotion here. That's the intensity like, Relief. So in healthy marriages, in healthy relationships, in healthy friendships, one of the great attributes we do for each other is we provide some relief. We provide relief. And in this situation, E provided relief just by her presence. He felt less alone. So this is a sign for relationships. If you don't know the needs of your friends and families, you'll not know how to provide relief. So this is where relational curiosity is essential to go, I wonder what they really need today. Do they need rest? Do they need connection? Do they need a break? Do they need someone to be listened to? What do they really need? And how can I provide a sense of relief? I see this all the time in like in a counseling conversation. Someone will come to me and they'll say, "Um, I want to tell you something that I haven't told anybody else. And I'll listen. And I won't try to be judgmental. I'll try to be empathetic and caring. And then they're like, I feel so much better. And what they needed was just compassion and care and listening kind of mindset. That's what they needed. And there was relief that they're now less alone with their story. They're less alone with their story. And here's what Adam did. He had a sense of relief that... We can give to each other. Now, here's what happens when we're so focused on our, our kind of blinders, we're, we don't even notice. I wonder what they need. Sometimes I'll ask this, and sometimes we'll do family counseling, and I'll ask, I'll just start with one of the individuals in the room. I'll say, I wonder what they need in life in the next few weeks. What are, what are their needs? Now, some of you are really great at knowing other people's needs, but you don't want to tell your needs. So it's a little distorted there. Some of you need to grow up. I need to verbalize my needs. And you're like, well, I don't want to feel vulnerable, but I want to have close relationships. It doesn't work that way. Right? So we have to both share and respond to the needs of people we love. It's a both-and street. It's a two-way street. Now, ultimately, for anybody in Christ, there's going to be ultimate relief. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.7 says, And give relief to you who are afflicted along with us, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 
one day there'll be, I would call, eternal relief from your struggles here on earth. There'll be relief. Great relief. Okay, so the first, first thing we talked about was what? Beauty. Second one was intrinsic value. The third we talked about helper in different roles. And the, last, the fourth one we talked about was relief. Relief. The last one we're going to talk about is um, probably my favorite topic to talk about in this area is shame. And I know if you ever want to like have someone like not talk to you on a plane, just open a book on shame and they won't talk to you for five hours. <laughs> That's a true story. I had a book on shame on my lap at the, on the, for a five-hour flight and they looked over like this and then they didn't want to talk. All right, because we all know what it feels like to feel it, but that's an awkward thing to talk about. So Genesis 2, 24, 25, it uh, says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not what? Ashamed. Notice. It could have said a lot of things here. It could have said, and they were both naked and really happy. <laughs> naked and having a good time. They could have said a lot of things right here. But it says they were naked and not ashamed. And that's really important. That was really intentional. This is the very end of Genesis 2. So then we have Genesis 3, 1 through 6, where Adam and Eve sin. They give in to sin. And then we have the very first verse listed after Adam and Eve sin. And that's Genesis 3, 7. And it's this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. The first consequence listed after Adam and Eve sinned was shame. It was shame. There's over 100 verses in the Bible on shame. It's a lot and it's heavy. And shame comes from within or from others. It can come from both ways. So what happens is, is they sin, they try to cover up themselves, which is really normal, and then there, there's always shame before the blame. That's what happened in Genesis 3. Shame happened, and then the blame happened. They don't take responsibility. God tries to call them out and says, hey, where are you at? And they avoid, avoid, blame, blame. He, she did, the serpent did it. It was all their fault, whatever. No ownership. And then God says, let me give some consequences. Let me give some consequences to what's going on. So there's blaming, no ownership, now there's consequences, and God says, now you have to leave the garden as a result of your sin. So imagine this. Does anybody here know someone else that has made some big mistakes and has taken no ownership? Anybody, anybody ever met that person? Like a boss, a friend, uncle, so-and-so, whatever. Yeah, but not us, you know, but for other people that could use this sermon. Right? For other people that could benefit... They take a mistake, they don't own it, they avoid it, but there's still some consequences. Imagine having this thought. I know they didn't own it and take any responsibility, but let me help them with a gift for their shame. What? That's not even logical. But that's what God did. That's what God did. So they don't take ownership. They blow it. They have to leave the garden, and then it's Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So notice, they had some fig leaves before. And now, what God does is he takes an innocent animal, there's a shedding of blood to cover up for the shame. Does this sound familiar for a future story? Yes, I believe it's a real story, but I think, believe there's a ton of symbolism here. 
Blood was shed. Uh, Arthur Pink puts it way better than I ever could. He, he puts it like this. It was the first gospel sermon preached by God himself, not in words, but in symbol and action. It was the settling forth of the way by which a sinful creature could return unto and approach his holy creator. It was a blessed illustration of substitution, the innocent dying instead of the guilty. So here they didn't take ownership. They blamed each other. They blew it. They brought sin into the world. And God goes, let me give them a gift. And it's to deal with their shame. So if any of you know somebody that's blaming, not owning, relapsing, deflecting, they still need help with their shame. If you ever know somebody that relapses, they need help with their shame. Even if they don't take ownership yet. Really, they need help. I really believe that shame not only impacts our future, but it impacts how we view our past. Even the stories we tell ourselves. Kurt Thompson put it this way. We are storytellers. We yearn to tell and hear stories of goodness and beauty. And this is the echo of God's intention. We long for our stories to be about joy, not just reflections of what we believe, but who we are, who we long to be. But shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. Shame impacts how we tell our stories. I actually would say this. Buried shame produces spiritual weeds. Buried shame produces spiritual weeds. So if someone is really embarrassed about a past mistake, they might get defensive about it later on. They might become numb to certain things or avoid certain things. Is there any professional avoiders out there? Yeah, some of you are avoiding raising your hand right now. So what I do to kind of wrap up our time here is I thought of a scenario in which one person has faced the shame and the other person has avoided the shame. Because buried shame always makes things worse. And that's what Adam and Eve did. It led to their blame. So I came up with an illustration that has nothing to do with anybody you know in here. This is completely fictitious. Of a man who got divorced, let's say, a year or two ago. And how different it is with facing shame or avoiding the shame. So the first is this. Here's the example. I put up the next slide. Is this. It says, and this is kind of like a narrative. When my wife and I divorced years ago, I was in shock and disbelief. I thought this would never happen to us, and I still avoid talking about it because I'm still ticked off when I think about what happened to our family. I still can't believe how much she still blames me for everything. You think this man's having a hard time? Even though it's maybe two years later? 100%. But you think this type of story happens all the time? Yes. All over the place. It doesn't have to be divorce. It could be other issues that are going on. It could be fighting about money and marriage. It could be past issues of trauma. Whatever, whatever the story is. Versus, let's look at another one where, again, not, it's not all perfect, but how it's different. When my wife and I divorced many years ago, I was in shock and disbelief. I've spent time praying through and talking through the divorce. Sometimes I feel sad about the divorce, but because I face shame, I can look more honestly at my part and her part that led to the divorce. Even though divorce was never my hope, I can see God's hand in the midst of that tough part of my life. He was faithful in the midst of everything. Notice how different these two men, men are. The first one is going to be bitter. Chance for drinking too much alcohol, avoiding church. 
throwing himself into some workaholic issue, whatever it is. The second one has hope. The second one's going to have a better chance of connecting with his kids. All those type of things. Because how he either avoided or faced shame. The great thing is God's grace is always greater than our shame. There's nothing you can do that he goes, oh, I'm done with them. The depth of grace is always greater than the depth of our shame. Every time. Permanently. All right, here's the five things. How did God show love? He showed beauty. He gives intrinsic value. There's differences. Yes, helper doesn't mean less than. It means actually great might and strength like a military. Relief through relationships like when Eve's presence. And then tools to face shame. Now some of you might be thinking, I've done a little of this and it hasn't got always better all the time. I'm still struggling sometimes. Like, I want the magic, like, spiritual Tylenol to make it all better. I'm going to have to disappoint you with expectations. But here's what I would say. I'm going to wrap up with this from C.S. Lewis. It says this, I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The struggle you have now is never permanent. Never. It's a, it might feel like it, but it's, it's, per, it's temporary. It's a temporary struggle. Even though it might feel like it's been 10 years, 20 years, it's not for eternity. And I love how C.S. Lewis says, we were made for another world. I hope you take what you learned today and go, and go a little deeper with God. Even contemplate with God. God, how do you want me to think a little differently about myself, you, others? and see what God does. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church, these people. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give great gifts. You give us value. You give us worth. You give us um, so many things. You, you give us, you offer us grace to face our shame. Lord, I pray for every person here. You give us the courage to face what we normally avoid. Lord, give us the courage to do that. I pray we'd even maybe face it with somebody, not by ourselves, with somebody on staff or someone else they trust. And God, we thank you for uh, always being faithful when we, we go up and down. In your name, amen.